Pokemon Go became an overnight sensation just a few weeks ago. Uh, July 7th, it was released, and in the three weeks that it's been out uh, and available, it's become the highest grossing app in the Apple App Store uh, in just three weeks. And you can tell it's pretty popular with our kids and pretty popular with young adults, too, for, uh, for those who grew up playing Pokemon with just the playing cards. You see a lot of young adults walking around the neighborhood with their phones looking to capture some Pokemon, Pokemon characters like Aerodactyl and Pikachu and Jigglypuff and Squirtle, and to train them up and have them face off. Um, Pokemon Go is kind of in a category of technology. It's an app on your phone, um, but it's considered to be a form of augmented reality um, or enhanced reality, where it takes what you're seeing and it overlays something on it. So this is the game screenshot, and it shows you where you are. But when you finally come up and kind of discover a Pokemon as you're looking around for it, it pulls up your camera phone. And so you're seeing, you know, what's in front of you, like right now, but overlaid on top of what you're seeing in the real world is this virtual character of the Pokemon. So I was, uh, when I first got the Pokemon app, I was walking around my house to see if I had any in my house, and there were. And so there's one in my dining room. So I'm holding up my camera phone and looking at the windowsill in my dining room, and sitting there is this purple Pokemon character uh, right, in, right in my dining room. Uh, and so it's in this form of augmented reality. It's, it's what you see, it's reality, but with something laid on top. Um, and if you remember Google Glass, which did, didn't really become a thing, that was the idea behind Google Glass, where you'd have these kind of glasses, and you'd go through and you'd just see as you normally would, but overlaid on top of that, you would see information about restaurants you were passing, or information about the weather, or what's going on, or the traffic. Um, and so it was reality, but it was augmented reality with all this digital information laid over top. And there have been lots written on Pokemon Go in just the last few weeks um, about how churches are welcoming Pokemon Go players to their churches because there are Pokemon all over here. So we have this Poke Gym right here uh, and Poke Stops out, out uh, on the grounds. And so uh, I was even hearing this morning that there were people walking around. Tad was telling me there are people walking around the church grounds doing their Pokemon thing. And say, is it okay for us to be here? Yeah, it's okay for you to be here. You know, welcome. So churches are putting out signs. They're making little hospitality carts <laughs> with <laughs> drinks and snacks and welcoming people to their church to play Pokemon. Um, and there's also been a lot written about how, surprisingly, po- uh, Pokemon, of all things, kind of sig- signals this advance of augmented reality um, and even virtual reality. So, like, on the cover of your bulletin, you'll see this person. That's got, she's got her headphones on and these virtual reality goggles which are slowly becoming a thing. So it's not just tapping a game on your phone or looking through the screen of your phone through the camera, but these goggles that create this kind of immersive kind of 3D um, virtual reality experience, like you're stepping in to another world. Um, It seems to be one of the big cutting edges of technology. Um, One of my favorite books that I've read recently, a friend recommended it, it quickly became one of my favorite books, uh, is, a, is a novel. It's called Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. Uh, and it's actually going to be made into a movie next year directed by Steven Spielberg. And it's a fictional story set into the future when this virtual reality has become fully realized. Um, there's a game in the book called The Oasis. 
uh, which is not so much a game as this entire digital virtual world where people all over the world gather. They log in through their VR goggles and their, these haptic gloves that give you sensations that help you navigate and manipulate your way through the world. Um, so it's not really as much of a game as it is like a world unto itself. So kids go to school in this virtual world, or people work in this virtual world, or attend concerts in this virtual world. Um, and it's a sprawling thing, kind of with many different planets, a universe worth of planets that all have different things going on. And the main character of this book is Wade Watts, whose game ID name is Parsival, uh, named after the knight who chased uh, the Holy Grail. And it follows him on this great quest that he's on as he moves between the physical world, the world we know, and this immersive virtual world of the Oasis. Um, And I don't want to spoil anything for you because it's such a good book, you should read it. Um, But it's a great way of imagining where all this technology might be taking us. And it raises a lot of questions, too, about what's really real, what's real, and what's virtual. Uh, The physical world, the virtual world, the digital world, or both, or none, or all of the above. I think that's one of the biggest questions that's raised by the advance of digital technologies that we're seeing. These powerful mobile devices we carry around, these high-speed connections to the internet, uh, and what at first seemed like silly games like Pokemon Go. They raise the question, what is real? What is reality? What's really real and what is virtual? Are friendships on social media real? And how so? Can we say anything meaningful in 140-character tweets? Or a snap from Snapchat that lasts for 10 seconds? I generally think they can be, but we have to treat them responsibly, whether we're gamers or users or just people of faith that are making our way through this increasingly digital world. And in fact, none of these are new questions because these aren't just questions about technology. These are human questions. And the authors of the Bible were asking these questions thousands and thousands of years ago. Our first reading for this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, which was written about 2,300 years ago by an author who describes himself as a seeker and a teacher of wisdom. And he tells us that he searched all around for wisdom and insight into the meaning of life and how best to live it, and that this book, Ecclesiastes, is kind of like his final report. And his stark conclusion and the refrain of the entire book is that all is vanity, literally meaning everything is just a breath, a breeze. It's a word that points to the transience, the futility, and the irrationality of life. The teacher concludes that even the best life is limited in knowledge, virtue, and power, troubled by evil and injustice, and ultimately ended in death not exactly the kind of book you want to read at the beach on your summer vacation. The author writes that despite people's best efforts, all their days are full of pain and their work of vexation. Even at night, their minds do not rest. He says that life is an unhappy business, that all our deeds are like chasing after the wind that will never reap the rewards of our toil. And in the context of this morning, what I hear the author of Ecclesiastes wondering and thinking and asking is, maybe reality isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Maybe all the things that we busy ourselves with aren't as real, aren't as durable, aren't as worthy, aren't as life-giving 
as we think they are. He's asking, what is really real? What is worthy of our time and attention? What are the things that are enduring? It's a question we need to keep asking, not just about our technology, but about our lives. And Jesus is doing much the same thing in our gospel today. Jesus takes this dispute between two brothers about their family inheritance and uses it as an opportunity to teach about greed. And he tells a story, a parable about a man, a farmer, who reaped a bumper crop, and it was so large that he tore down his existing barn to build a bigger barn to hold it all. And he says to his soul, relax, you've got enough wealth to last you for years. Now be satisfied and content. But Jesus says that when he dies, which may be sooner than he thinks, all that will go to someone else. It will all amount to nothing. Jesus, as he did so often, challenged his listeners to think about where their true treasure lies and called people into a new reality that he called the kingdom of God, where like Ecclesiastes, wealth and power are not the ultimate reality, but rather God's love and our love for God and our love for our neighbors is. He said that we often get caught up in what the world sees as real, what the world calls success, But our reality, God's reality, goes deeper and endures forever. You know, we've just come off of two big weeks of national party political conventions. And one of the things that you hear political pundits say over and over again is that each party, each candidate, and their supporters need to change the narrative. Have you heard them say that? They must have said it 2,000 times in the last two weeks. They need to change the narrative, or they need to define the narrative. Each party and each candidate are telling a story, a narrative about how the world is and who they are and how they'll meet the challenges of the world that they describe and why they're the right person to lead in this time and this place. Conventions, with their speeches and all their stagecraft, are all about creating narratives, which is ultimately about defining our reality. Jesus dealt with the same things in his time. For instance, you had the Roman Empire, who had lots and lots of narratives. One of the narratives was the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which is said to have lasted 250 years, including the time that Jesus walked the earth, the peace of the Roman Empire. But it was a false peace because it was built atop of war and violence, death, destruction, and oppression. Even our term gospel, meaning good news, is a spoof on that Roman narrative. Gospels used to be the letters that were sent out to announce a great military victory by the armies of Rome. But Jesus turned gospel into a pronouncement of victory over death through the power of love. You also, at the same time, had the religious authorities who were defining and dividing up the world between those who were religiously pure and devout and those who were considered unclean and outcast, who were the, Jesus, the people that Jesus spent almost all of his ministry with. Jesus, in his life and his teaching, was changing the narrative, calling people in his time and calls us back to what's really real, not a virtual reality of the things that keep us busy, the pursuit of money and stuff, power, privilege, and prestige, but back to the reality of the kingdom of God, where we lift up the lowly and the lost are found, the sick are healed, 
where we listen and we love and we forgive, where grace and mercy and loving service are the currency of life. I mean, think for a minute. If you were to close your eyes and I were to ask you, what's the most real thing in your life? What is the most real thing in your life? I'm betting it's not all the trappings of life. I'm betting it's not all the errands that you have to run or your to-do list or the number in your bank account. I bet it goes way deeper than that. I bet it has to do with love and relationships. You know, each year before Christmas, Jenny and I watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, I'm a complete sucker for it. I cry every time. And I cry at the point in the movie, you know, when everything falls away from George Bailey. He is stripped bare, and he is tempted to despair. But in those moments, he discovers what was there all along, right? That love and friendship and relationship and faith are truly what matters in the end. The theologian Paul Tillich once famously described God as the ground of all being, the heart and the root of our lives, and that everything else is just a virtual reality. Coming back to Ecclesiastes, uh, I think most people would see the acknowledgement of the vanity of this world either as cynical or pessimistic, an admission of defeat, or an excuse to remain on the life's surface and not to plumb its depths, or maybe just a reason for apathy, and perhaps all of the above. And if that were the final word, it would be. It would leave us in despair too. But Ecclesiastes and all is vanity is not our ending. It's only our beginning. Just a little bit of history here. Um, In the early church, Ecclesiastes was considered part of what was known then at the time as the Solomonic Trilogy. Um, The books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs were all believed to have been written by the wise King Solomon. So when we hear at the beginning of our reading from Ecclesiastes about this wise teacher, they thought that was Solomon. And at the time, those three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, were believed to represent kind of the the progression of the spiritual life. So Proverbs was the beginning of wisdom in the spiritual life. It was about living wisely and moral discipline. And then next, Ecclesiastes was about observing the natural world and realizing that indeed all is vanity. But then comes along the Song of Songs, which represented the highest aspiration of the spiritual life, the contemplation of God, loving relationship and union with God. And so the idea was that one had to first recognize the impermanence of earthly things, their ability to satisfy for a time but not forever, in order to recognize that true life happens somewhere else, that true life happens and flows out of our relationship with God, whose defining characteristic is love, passionate and enduring love for us. 
And so it is for us today. When our illusions of the world break down, when the narratives that we've been given fail us, whether through our own experience of suffering or circumstance or growing older and wiser, when we lose money and find that we are still happy, when we make money and find that it doesn't satisfy us like we thought it would, when we burn out in the pursuit of what we are told is success and have to reevaluate our lives, when we don't seem ourselves to fit the narrative of who the world says that we should be, when those narratives fail, we see again the true meaning of life, that we and our world are held together by the love of God. It is then when things that are seen finally reveal themselves to be vanity, that the things that are unseen, those hidden but always present, reveal themselves to us. The true heart of life, the true meaning of life, our true purpose in life emerges. The world, with all its beauty and all its riches, is a true gift from God, but it can't satisfy our deepest longings. Only God can do that. And so we look at our world and we say, there is great beauty and there is great evil, there is good and there is bad, there is everything in between. But that isn't all there is. There is more and so much more. It's our true reality in God. Amen.